Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 1. And the last time we finished up chapter 13, we went through four sermons on eschatology, which is a study of end times, which is so important. The Lord devoted many chapters in the Bible. Other Bible writers devoted time to eschatology, the study of end times. And today we move into chapter 14. We're getting closer to the resurrection, or at first the crucifixion, burial, and then the resurrection. And uh, I titled today's message, The True Treasure. And Jesus is the true treasure. You know, as we go through the Christmas season, we think about what's important. We think about gifts that we want, you know, gifts that we want to give to others that have a special meaning to it. But it's just a great coincidence that we're talking about the true treasure this morning. Now, we're, gonna, we're only covering 11 verses. This is a long chapter. 11 verses, and it's going to go through Mary, really Mary of Bethany, and Judas Iscariot. And Mary worships Jesus, but Judas betrays him. That's kind of unusual. It's the same son of God, the same powerful figure. As a matter of fact, I was going to name the message the polarizing savior, which really kind of goes with this too, but I did want to change direction a little bit. The life of a pastor is almost a little bit of insanity. You know, you go through the week and it's Friday and Saturday and you're praying and the Lord kind of diverts you and you know, your life becomes a living sermon at some point. You're always taking in information to be able to use it and share and uh, kind of throw a parable out like Jesus did. So it's the same, same Jesus, same Son of God. However, Mary recognized him as the true treasure, but Judas was looking at other things. He was looking at the world. He was looking at actual tangible tre treasure. He really sacrificed his eternity for the here and now. And that's really a, a really important lesson for us to understand. Now, I just I do have to warn you, especially the ladies who were at the breakfast um, yesterday morning, this happens once every three or four years that my wife and I kind of independently come up with the same message. So we're, we're sitting this week and we're talking and she's telling me what she's going to talk about. And I'm like, oh, but, but Mark 14's coming up. You know, you're, it's going to be the same message and you're going to get there first. You know, <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> so we have these conversations and she said, well, it's, I, I've been preparing this for a month and I'm not changing it. And I said, you can't talk to me like that. I'm the pastor. <laughs> that actually didn't happen, but I figured I'd throw it in there for effect. So, ladies, um, you're going to hear very similar things, but from a different angle. And maybe it's because, well, listen, there are no coincidences. It's something that God really wants us to understand. And everybody else, you'll be hearing it for the first time. So let's jump in. Mark 14, starting with verse 1, it says, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him, Jesus, by trickery or deception and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So the religious leaders know that Jesus is popular with the common folk. And in that society, you know, in the American culture, it's, we have to almost read culture and the different you know, ebbs and flows of, of over the year, the evolution of culture, because really in that society, 
there really wasn't a middle class. You had everybody who was basically scraping by, they lived a simple life, and then you had the upper echelon. And there really was very few people in between. You were either one or the other. So they had to find a way to take Jesus and put him to death, but not take personal responsibility for their actions. And here's the thing. You know, we get on the religious leaders a lot, but they were the vanguards of spiritualism. They were supposed to be in the seat of Jerusalem. They actually were supposed to be the ones that were looking and having their ears perked up for the false messiahs so they could tell the people, this, this person's a deceiver. So they actually were tasked with this. Unfortunately, they didn't really... Well, unfortunately, the system was corrupt. So their understanding of the Word of God was not spirit-filled. So when the true messiah came, they, you know, they believed that he was a deceiver. But I think that their personal feelings of being pushed aside by this popular you know, prophet was something that really their emotions took hold of them, and they really wanted to kill him. But I've got to tell you that when it comes to spiritual leaders, I don't know about you, but I can't tolerate equivocating prevaricating, you know, two-faced, bowing under pressure, religious leaders. If you're going to speak for me, it's been 11 years, nobody's put a microphone in my face. When they do, um, I'm just going to make sure I say bold and say the truth and, and not walk it back. But you see these leaders of Christianity, supposedly de facto leaders, who they say something, God told them, or this is what God says, and then they bow under public pressure. So your spiritual leaders become now politicians. They take public opinion polls. They check the temperature. They see the outcry and the outpouring of what they say, and then they walk it back. That's disturbing to me. And that's what these guys did. You know, If you really believe he's a, 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 you know, a liar and you believe he's a deceiver, then take him openly because you're supposed to be protecting the public in a spiritual sense from this man. But, of course, they didn't do that. On a historical note, and I'm not going to read it, but Matthew 26.3, it speaks about Caiaphas. I love doing this. I love going back to my secular history, the encyclopedias, and reading about these historic figures, Annas and Caiaphas. And there's a whole thing between their relationship and the Romans. But Joseph Caiaphas was an actual figure who was, got very cozy with the Romans, and he became increasingly unpopular with the people. So that, that factors into this discussion. When they talk about taking Jesus, they're already starting to lose popularity because they're really not following God. They're following the Romans because the Romans are keeping their seat of power. So, so put all that in your mind. You ask questions. Why do they do this? Why do they hate him so much? When you really get the historical flavor of what's going on, the setting, it makes more sense. Verse 3, it says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now let me just say that in John 12, because I'm going to refer to John 12, which is a parallel scripture. I'm also going to refer at times to Matthew 26. But in John 12, it says not only did she pour it on his head. Mark's giving you a general understanding. Remember we talked about Mark. Mark says what it is and he moves on to the next subject. Right? He's appealing to a Roman audience. However, at times, Matthew, Luke, and John, because of trying to make a point, they actually elaborate more. Not a problem. You know, they're coming from different angles. So in John 12, it says, not only did she pour this on his head, but she also poured it on his feet, and she used her hair, almost like a paintbrush, to get it all over his feet. And we're going to talk about the significance of that. But there were some who indignant 
among themselves. They were at the table, like this is a, a social gathering, and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? So they're hanging out at Simon's place, and, you know, disciples and Jesus, and, and maybe some people from the village, some of Simon's friends, and all of a sudden, this woman comes, and her name is Mary, the Bible tells us, and she interrupts what they're doing and has this display. And let me tell you something, it wasn't a show. The more we talk about it, it was an act of incredible humility. Right? Especially for a woman in that society to go where there's a bunch of guys were to hone in on the Lord Jesus and do this for him. Right? Had a lot of meaning, meaning to it. So the, the ones at the table, they say, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. They were mean. They weren't nice to Mary when they talked about her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Now remember, they still, this was foreign to them. The disciples still didn't get the whole burial, crucifixion, resurrection thing. They probably in their mind hoped hope that he just was saying allegories because it would affect them as well. But she got it, and we'll talk about that. Verse 9, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of as a memorial to her. Amen. Three gospels, 2,000 years, everybody knows about Mary. You read the scripture, you get it. So Jesus is, is right on in everything he says. Let me give you the setting, and then let's jump into the application phase. Because there's a lot of setting, and the setting is important. Crucifixion is real close at this point. You know, disciples, at some, in a lot of respects, were clueless. Jesus knew he was serious that he had to go to the cross. And when you really understand the, the details of this horrible torture, okay, um, you know, he was a man too, but he was fully God, and, and he had to do this. So he goes out to the outskirts of Jerusalem, and you see this. We read this throughout the, the gospel accounts. You find him in Jerusalem during the day, and he goes out to the suburbs in the evening to get a little rest, a little peace, some prayer time, you know, social companionship. And then he comes back into Jerusalem again the next day. See, I find this sad that the spiritual system was equated with stress or aggravation. And that's what happens when man gets his hands on religion. And he doesn't do it according to what the Bible says. You know, some of you have come from religious systems where you felt the same way you felt oh, i got to go to church today you know is, is my dress impeccable is the way i look is the way i i speak right if i say something wrong somebody's going to step on me man burdens the things of god but the things of god are supposed to be a joy when they're done in their perfect sense as he set them up so a little geography bethany was about one and a half miles still is to two miles on the east of Jerusalem. So if you go over the Mount of Olives, on the southeast side of the Mount of Olives is this suburb of, of Bethany. So Jesus goes to the burbs for a little R&R. Well, we know that. Jesus ends up at Simon the leper's house. Now this is interesting because the Bible, doesn't the Bible tell us that everyone who came to Jesus who was afflicted was healed? We can only assume that Simon really was the former leper, but he's still known as Simon the leper. You see, I have three names. I have a first, middle, and last name. And in our culture, each name means something. 
And I know in, even in the Spanish community, sometimes they have four or five names. So you can't confuse people because it's, it's very clear. The more names, the more it distinguishes that person from others who have the same first name. Now, Simon in that culture was a common name because it was Simeon. So Jewish males were often named Simeon. And the English translation is Simon. Now, Simon had to be distinguished probably from others that were also named Simon. Remember, it's a common name. There might have been Simon the Tall, Simon the Rich, Simon the Leper. But Jesus heals him. But the name still sticks to distinguish him from Simon the Tall and Simon the Rich. I don't know that those guys actually live there. I'm giving you conjecture. I'm giving you an example. Simon's healed. They can call him Simon the Leper all they want, but his, every time he looks at his skin, it's like a baby's skin because Jesus healed him. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the way the culture was. But everybody in this room has some type of past. Let me just encourage you, don't let your past become your present. See, calling Simon the leper all day long wasn't going to make him have leprosy. But sometimes we in the church, unfortunately, we let stuff stick to us when it should be Teflon. Jesus has forgiven us for our sins. I mean, what are you holding against yourself that Jesus has already forgiven you for? Let it go. Because that was already paid for at the cross. I just think that's beautiful. So let's take a deeper look into the setting. The first thing, John 12. John 12 tells us that it was the woman, right, the woman who did this anointing was Mary, Mary from Bethany. And he even goes further and says, this Mary was the sister of Martha, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead in John chapter 11. We put it all together. Now we know who Mary is. Heather said yesterday it was Mary from the Burbs, you know, the suburbs. So we know who Mary is. The second thing that we look at is that Mary anointed Jesus with spikenard oil. Now, this was expensive, and let me tell you why. Number one, it was imported from India at the time. So to get something all the way from India to Jerusalem or to Judea, it was quite a trek that lended to its cost. The other thing is that it was an alabaster flask. If we could put up the slide of the alabaster flask, they actually find these in, you know, archaeologists find this stuff all the time. Um, when they were originally made, you know, archaeologists have to be careful. They want to clean it off, but they don't want to clean it too much because the stuff is fragile. If they break it, this stuff is priceless. So it would have even been prettier in real life when it was originally found. As you can see with the measurements and the numbers, this is an actual find in the Holy Land. So this is your alabaster flask, which is usually a translucent. You can possibly, well, you can see through it in some ways. You can see the level of the liquid because it's translucent, and it was a, a white marble type of, of container. Now, today, expensive uh, perfume is measured in a few ounces. I don't wear expensive perfume, but I'm told that there are expensive perfumes. However, this was a whole pound, the Bible tells us, of spikenards. Of spikenards. So, that 16 ounces equal one pound. That's a lot of product that you have here. Now, spikenard had uses. It had uses of medicinal, right? Medicinal purposes, seasoning, embalming. I've been to a lot of death scenes, and they're not pretty. And especially when it's hot, the smell is overwhelming. And you have to put something under your nose to keep you from gagging. So out in the Middle East, where it's always hot, it's a hot climate, bacteria multiply when the immune system stops when a person dies, and you know the rest, gases and smells and 
it's just not pretty. Death is really actually a loathsome and ugly thing, and thankfully that Jesus saved us from that. We don't sit there and go, oh no, I'm rotting. No, because who you are actually goes to be with the Lord. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you've passed from death unto life. However, the loved ones still had to deal with the body. They had to deal with it in a respectful way. So they would use the spike knot oil because it was very strong to, you know, hot climate, bad smells, to help you as you would go through the services and not get everybody sick. The fourth thing that uh, spike knot oil was used for was a perfume. Now, and I'm going to say perfume and I'm going to say personal hygiene. Remember, hot climate, bad smells, lack of showers. You can put it together. You know, a little dab will do you. You, just, you know what I'm saying? And the spike knot did the trick. So, you, you know, social settings and all. They couldn't bathe and, and clean themselves as readily as we can with indoor plumbing. Only the wealthy people had that. Okay. Now, if we look at the spikenard, or if we look at the alabaster flask, if you'll notice, you see the neck, it's tall and skinny. That was for a reason. Uh, the top, the opening, would have been sealed with wax, or a wax dab. And when you needed a little dab, you would, you know, stuff's expensive, little dab, do what you got to do, put the wax back on. Usually only the wealthy could afford to dump this uh, all at once, because it was expensive. Now, basically what they would do is, the neck was weak, See how thick the, the body of it is? And you see here's the opening. So in the, in the event that you had to deal with it quickly, it's actually pretty, it's almost like the modern day understanding of scoring with, with vials, right? So basically what you would do is you would take the bottle, hold it in your hand, and hit it on something hard, and the neck would, would break. This whole top piece would come off, and then you could just take it and dump it, right? Dump it for the, for the burial. Again, only usually wealthy people could afford to do something like this. Fourth point, and we'll run into the uh, applications here. Due to the cost of the spikenard oil, not everybody could afford imported spikenard oil from India. And we can ask questions about how she got it, and was it given to her, was it, um, you know, a bequeathment and such. But what happens is you could trade this, you could hoard it and trade it and not use it at all. Because to the common person, this was worth, that pound, adjusted for today's salary, the common person would be making somewhere between 7000 and 15000 a year, and that's how much that little pound of spikenard would have been worth. So we, we asked the question, how did she get this? Was she wealthy? Was it her retirement? Was it her only savings? Was it her dowry? Was it left to her when her parents died? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And Mary acts in such a profligate, wasteful way to just dump this all over Jesus. And the disciples, looking at it from a worldly perspective, they're, they're upset. And Judas is the ringleader, by the way, when we read all the scripture. He's the one who pipes up the most about this. So let's dig in about this. To the carnal mind, to the worldly mind, this is stupid. It's wasteful. It's ridiculous. To the spiritual-minded, Mary gave Jesus all that she had. Let's consider that for a moment. Think about our lives. What do we have? This might have been all that she had, and she dumps it all over the Lord. No compunction, no second thoughts. She just does it. Because Mary gave Jesus what? Her best. Her best. What a great example today to us in 2015. Are we giving Jesus our best? Because she did. She knew who she was dealing with, and it was a result of her sitting at the Lord's feet. We often find Mary in the Scripture sitting at the Lord's feet. 
In John chapter 11, when her brother died and he's in there for four days rotting, and Jesus comes and he raises him from the dead, before that happens, Mary finds out about Jesus, comes to the Lord, and we find her at his feet. John chapter 11. In Luke 10, when her sister, you know, they have Jesus over and her sister's running around and serving and doing all this kind of stuff, Mary's just sitting at the Lord's feet and her sister Martha gets upset. She's tweaked with Mary and says to Jesus, tell her to help me. And Jesus says, she's chosen the better thing. She's chosen to sit at my feet. So Mary understands fully who the Lord is because she's taken the time to sit at the Lord's feet. And I have to tell you, in our culture, and I'm guilty of it too, we are so darn distracted. Listen, I'm fighting the good fight here because I still have one of these flip phones. Okay? I did put it on vibrate. <laughs> fighting the good fight because I know if I had one of them iPhones, I'd probably be on it all the time. More than I am now. I'm just saying. It's just me. I'm just talking, to, you know. Listen, I, I got to listen to this message as, as well as you do. So this is what's going on here. Do we take time to sit at the Lord's feet? I'm going to share a few principles. I like to do this on a Sunday morning. Principles, right? What do we understand? And the first one I came up with was feet before feet. You might say, have you lost your mind? What's feet before feet? Okay. Capital F-E-E-T, the Lord's feet before feet. Little f, F-E-A-T, our feet. So think about that principle. In order to perform any feat, if it's going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, we need to first sit at the Lord's feet. You see, there's an order in everything in the Bible. That's the beautiful thing. People think we just wor worship this willy-nilly, ambiguous faith. No, it's awesome. Pastor's been preaching this stuff for 2,000 years. We haven't said in 2014, um, well, gee, there's nothing left to preach because it's all been preached. No, there is, this is the living word, we're told. The living word is always an application for it. So feet before feet. I have to tell you that, like I said in the opening, everything in my life I feel is like sermon preparation. Two to three years ago, well, my wife talked me into it. <laughs> She's this animal lover. She's like, we, we need, she gets these ideas. We need to rescue a pit bull. Why do we need to rescue a pit bull? There's so many people. Why does it have to be us? We don't have enough going on in life. So the first pit bull we get is like from Tennessee. And she's a beautiful, beautiful girl, a few years old, or just out of being a puppy. And, uh, you know, I haven't owned a dog since I was a kid. I kind of missed it, but, it's, you know, now I'm in love with the dogs. Then, of course, you can't just have one, like potato chips. You know, you, you, you got to have another one. So then we get our other dog from Georgia. Thank God they have good temperaments. So we get these two dogs, and you know what I found about my dogs? They're always licking my feet. I don't know what my feet taste like, but they sure love to lick them. Maybe that's TMI. <laughs> I tell you what, in the wintertime, it's great because they... Don't, not yet. <laughs> it's coming. In the, win <laughs> in the winter time, <laughs> they're at the edge of my bed, and they're like heaters. They keep my feet nice and toasty, and I have to kind of nudge them a little bit. I'm trying to sleep, stop licking my feet. I actually had one point where I was on the phone with Pastor Jason. It's my own fault, one hand, and I got two. They're a good workout, too. They're very strong. I had both of them with one leash. I'm on the phone. They do their business. I don't realize they're, they're getting behind me, and they're at my feet again. They get into the crook of my knee. I moved. 
they were a fulcrum. My feet went up. I went down. And uh, I, did, I did keep my witness, though, I, I have to say, but I, I wasn't happy. <laughs> if we could put up the slide, please. Before you think I've totally lost my mind, what does this have to do with Mary? Trust me, it, it, there's a lesson in this. So that's me trying to get a nap on the porch, you know, and I'm, I'm, my wife takes the picture. And my one girl, she's at my feet, and my other one's trying to get at my feet. See, they think, they're big dogs, they think they're lap dogs. But they're not. All seriousness, um, w with dogs... Over the last 2,000 years, I guess that's why they call them man's best friends. They love to be at your feet. I find this interesting. Dogs, in some ways, can be smarter than people. And we have cats, too. I think cats are much more clever. They're much more planned about what they do. Dogs are kind of goofy, but they're very loyal. A dog doesn't know who God is, but they know who their master is. They know that you feed them, you shelter them, you take care of them, you love them. So they worship you because they don't know God. However, we as people, sometimes we're just, we're foolish. We're dumber than dogs. Because we're the ones that should be at the Lord's feet. He is the one who's given us life. He is the one. The Bible says that all good things come from the Father of lights. You see? And, and sometimes in the church, we have to be re-reminded that we should be at the Lord's feet. Because we, we get foolish. You know, we think we could do it on our own. We start running ahead of the Lord. And what does it do? It gets us in trouble. We become double-minded. But we can learn such a simple lesson from those dogs. You see, Mary knew that this was a humiliating place to be, but she willingly subjected herself to the Lord's feet anyway. Can you imagine that? This woman comes into a society with mostly men at the table, and they could be having a conversation, and it's, it's humiliating enough that she is interrupting it and not knowing how it's going to be taken. And she pours the spikenard on his head, but then she actually gets down on her knees and on her feet and she takes her hair, right? The Bible tells us the, the crown of a woman. And she takes her hair and she starts wiping this all over his feet, making sure every part of his feet have the spikenard oil. And you could hear a pin drop probably in that room as she was doing this until the disciples led by Judas started piping up and insulting her. But you know what? She didn't care. Because the only person she saw in that room was her Lord Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we need to be like that too. Be at his feet. And, and even if there's a crowd around us, even if you know, the world is around us, not be ashamed to be at his feet. Yes, for a human being, it is humiliating. Because even today in war, when you, when you beat somebody and you defeat them, you put your foot on their neck. This goes back thousands of years. The term bootlicker. Is a, is a derogatory term. Kiss the person's feet. It's a derogatory term, isn't it? However, that's the place, the exact place that we need to be as children of God, at the Lord's feet. Very simple message. Very simple. Why did Mary do this? Because she understood who the Lord is. And I submit to you, in John chapter 11, Mary had a, resurre a resurrection experience. She knows, she watched her brother die. Was it painful? Was he, I've seen people die a lot. They're usually gasping for air. Their, their body is still trying to, it's in their death throes, trying to fight the death process, and then they pass away. 
So she saw that. And, you know, Jesus could have come earlier and stopped all that, but he didn't. And then for four days, he's in the tomb, and Jesus comes. Maybe she thought, well, all is lost. He's already dead, and he's rotting. What could the Lord do? We do that today, too, don't we? It's so ridiculous. God is a big God. Is there anything that the Lord can't do, brothers and sisters, if we're in his will, if we're praying according to his will? And what does Jesus do? Lazarus, come forth. And they move that stone out of the way. And they, they move the stone out of the way, and Lazarus comes out probably looking like a mummy. He's got all these grave claws, and he's stumbling around. And even Jesus says, the detail in the Bible is impeccable. Lose him. Take the grave clothes off of him. He's healed. He's 100%. He's completely restored. Mary had a resurrection experience, and because of that, her whole life changed. And i got to tell you something. I had a resurrection experience, too. That's why I'm up here. And you know what? 11 years, I've made a fool of myself. I've said things that I can't take back. I don't care, though. I'm going to keep doing it because I know that my Lord lives. And when we understand who He is and we have a resurrection experience, then we, we um, relate to Him like Mary did. Amen? Amen. I, have to, I just have to warn you that if we compartmentalize Jesus in our life and put Him in a little closet and only take him out sometimes when nobody else is looking so we could pray to him or ask him for stuff because it's Christmas time, we're never going to have victory. And I've seen this time and time and time again. just goes back to the message last Sunday. Lifestyle, not lifeline. Not to call out to the Lord for a lifeline. And, and we can do that as believers. I, I talked about my life before uh, as a non-believer. That's all I did was call out to him when I was in trouble. But to make God a lifestyle... Right? To let him be in all the rooms of our house. Because when we have a, a tribulation or a trial, we're only going to become angry and we're going to resort to the flesh if we haven't been spiritually prepared. I've seen it many times. People say insolent things about God. They have unrealistic unreal, expectations on their Christian friends in these times because they're carnal. Because they're carnal. Because they haven't been spiritually prepared. Right? In John 12, what we find is we find more detail and we find that Judas actually makes a big stink about the perfume. I, all right, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> Why? Because he wanted to take, he takes the money. He was the treasurer. Do you think that Jesus didn't see that? Of course he did. Judas said, well, it's for the poor. How many times do you hear that today? You know, when we take the Bible out of context, we find Jesus, we can find him as an insensitive son of God until we take the Bible in context and we understand that that's not true. Well, you'll have the poor always, but you won't always have me. Well, if any person said that, that would be very prideful, but we're talking about the son of God here. And he is worthy to be worshipped. He was worshipped by the angels before he took the form of a man, and they still ministered to him on the earth. So Judas has a problem because you know, he's a thief. And we see this happen all the time in the world, don't we? The GAO comes by and there's this big fund for the poor and you know, um, the, you know, Congress passes this law and politicians oversee it and they find, oh, there's, there's $10 million missing. What happened? Nobody's ever held accountable. We move on to the next thing that Congress votes on. But you know what's really bad? When it happens in the church. A brother, and, a brother just emailed me an article about another church officer who was embezzling I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars from the church, and now he's going to jail. Do these people think that they're never going to get caught? However, that's the Judas spirit. See, Judas was an officer in the church. 
he hid behind the name of God to do nefarious things. Judas was in ministry for every other reason than for God. He was in ministry for himself. See, Judas wanted the flask of the spikenard. Mary wanted Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what do we want this morning? What's our flask of spikenard? It's like that, that Capital One commercial, what's in your wallet? What's in your flask? Whatever you put your time, your thought life, your money, your service into, that's what's in your flask. What's in your flask and what's in my flask? Judas wanted earthly treasure. Mary wanted the treasure that could not spoil and that thieves couldn't steal. In addition, again, Mary didn't care who was in the room. She counted the costs and she did it anyway. So question, why did Jesus allow Judas to stay in his ranks for all this time if he was stealing money from the treasury? God is long-suffering. And brothers and sisters, we should never equate us not getting caught or somebody not getting caught for God doesn't see or God doesn't care. A lot of things going on in a lot of churches. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 is chilling to the bone. Jesus said, many will come to me. All these things that they did in the name of God, to us, it looked good. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. But, but I was an officer in the church, but I was a pastor, but I, I was an usher, but I, but I tithed. I never knew you. Jesus wants our heart. The second principle I'm going to mention this morning is the principle of eventuality. A person can either be convicted at some point, convicted of their sins and repent, which is the desirable one. The Bible is very clear. God wants all to repent, right? all to be saved. Or that person gets so deep into their sin that it destroys them, if not here in the afterlife. Pretty sobering. Jesus said in verse 7, the poor you will always have. That's a powerful statement, again, often misunderstood. You know, there's different ministries, and some ministries say, well, we just got to preach the Word of God. We do. We just have to live the Word of God. We do. And then there's other ministries say that we have to help the poor. We do. James 1.27, helping others that are less fortunate really should be a lifestyle. Not bragging about the stuff that we have. Not bragging about the money that we make. And then somebody is maybe down the street and we know that they're struggling and we just, listen, I'm doing good. Don't care about that person. James 1.27 is clear that in some way in our lifestyle we have to incorporate helping others that are less fortunate. So they, the two are married. The two both go together. And I tell you, the leaders of this church are, are very careful that both are being met because it's important. And then getting the church involved is an exciting way to, to, to be a part of it. However, our devotion to God should always be greater than any benevolence that we bestow to mankind. Remember, feet before feet. Sometimes this is an issue with the social gospel or social, social justice circles where humanism, helping our fellow man, is the highest thing and it's actually another cloak for not living the right life according to God's word and acting it out. But we're helping the poor. A lot of people say that today, don't they? On TV, ministries, we're helping the poor. Politicians, we're helping the poor. Everybody's helping the poor and the poor is still poor. How does that happen? <laughs> you know, decades, the war on poverty, billions, trillions of dollars spent. Why is the people still poor? Well, because I think a lot of people are taking. That's why. That's my opinion. 
In verse 8, Jesus said, she has done this, what? Beforehand for my burial. That makes no sense. That makes no sense to the carnal mind because you would always do this after. Well, you wouldn't squirt the stuff on somebody while they were still alive. That's, that's insulting. And that's, that's, oh, did you have a dream about me? What are you squirting this stuff on me for? But she knew prophetically beforehand when the disciples weren't even sure what he was talking about, Mary knew it. Mary knew it. I saw him raise my brother from the dead. Whatever he says, I'm taking that as gold. I'm hiding that in my heart. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Mary goes, he's going to the cross. He's, he's going to be buried. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. He's going to rise again. I got it. I'm digging it. Here you go. Spikenard oil. She knew it. She believed in the cross. She believed in the resurrection. She believed that Jesus was going to die for her sins. And she acted on it. I'm going to throw this conjecture in here, and I believe based on what he said that this is an actual true thing. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I bet you, on his walk to the cross, step by step by step, if you were close enough, you could smell the spikenard oil on him. That stuff was so strong. It was so pungent. I don't know how he slept for the days before he actually got crucified because it was a powerful smell. But I have no doubt in my mind that he used step by step by step. I bet the Roman soldiers smelled it. You smell spikenard oil? Yeah, I think it's on him. All the way to the cross. Here's a theme of, about the fragrance of Christ, and let me just kind of flip it a little bit, that the Apostle Paul takes up in 2 Corinthians 2.15. I remember teaching 2 Corinthians. This is an awesome portion of Scripture. Verse 15, it says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Guess what? We now become polarizing figures too. To some, it says, to the one we are the aroma of death. It's the same fragrance of Christ. Death to death. And to the other, the aroma of life to life. And who is sufficient, sufficient for these things? We now naturally, by default, become polarizing figures. To some, the fragrance of Christ to them is anathema. It's hideous. It's horrible. It reminds them of their sin. It reminds them that they're, they're, they're pushing God away. To others, it's the aroma of life to life. Oh, a fellow believer. And you embrace. Same person, same message, same agenda. Different responses. Different responses. I'll tell you this, Jesus smelled like spikenard and Mary smelled like Christ in the spiritual sense. You say that again, Jesus smelled like spikenard, Mary smelled like Christ. What do we smell like? And I'm not asking you to do this this morning. You know, in a spiritual sense, what do we smell like? Do we smell like the world? If we really think about it for a moment in our minds and reflect, what do I smell like? What's my fragrance? Is it the fragrance of Christ or is it the fragrance of the world? Again, I'll just say this, just to, to kind of elaborate that point a little bit about the disciples. It's, it's so easy to pick on the disciples, isn't it? <laughs> it's so easy to pick on the children of Israel in the Old Testament. But you know what? We're, we're flawed too. We do the same thing. I just say it for an application. I'm not saying if I walk with them, I'd be any better. I'd be piping up and I'd be embarrassed. Me and Peter would be probably in the same boat, you know. Quiet, Peter. Be quiet, Joe. You know what I'm saying? You don't know what you're talking about. Oof. It's like the fourth time you said it. You think I'd learn to shut up by now. The disciples, in a moment of weakness, follow Judas. 
How long has Judas walked with them? Did anybody discern that he wasn't really a spiritual guy? That he was just in it for himself? And that's a sad thing today when, when believers follow. And you see it in the church community. You see it, hey, you see it in Calvary Chapel communities. There's a, a carnal person, but they have the appearance of being a leader. They have the appearance of being cool or having it all together. And they just, people are like sheep. They'll follow them. Bad, bad idea for the disciples. And Jesus had to rebuke them. You guys are wrong. He's wrong. And then he betrays. Lastly, Jesus was going to make sure that this woman was honored for all time going forward. When the gospel was preached, Mary of Bethany was going to be preached. And let me say this, that devotion to the Lord is not something that will ever be forgotten. And even times when we're devoted to the Lord and maybe we feel like we're not being noticed. God notices. Who cares if other people notice? Right? Look at Jeremiah. Nobody, nobody came to Jeremiah and said, hey, great job. <laughs> we're all going to be judged. Oh, you know, we're going to be attacked by our enemies. Nobody said, great job, Jeremiah. But Jeremiah did it because he was devoted to the Lord. And he got punished by the king's court and by those in power for telling the truth. But when we devote ourselves to the Lord, when we sacrifice, when we give things up, when the light bulb goes off and we say, you know what, I see those older Christians. I see for decades what they've been through. I see how the Lord has ministered to them. I see the smile as they talk about the trials that they've endured in life. And it clicks. And then we, we now say, oh, I get it now. I want to be so devoted to my Lord. That will never be taken from you, brothers and sisters. Amen? Last two verses. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. So when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Mary anoints Jesus, but Judas tries to destroy Jesus. In Luke 22, it says that Satan entered Judas. I submit to you that Satan entered Judas because Judas allowed Satan to enter him. He was no victim. In our culture, everybody wants to be a victim. Personal responsibility. Judas allowed Satan to enter him. He was fertile ground because of his own selfishness. If he couldn't get the pound of spikenard, he was going to go to the religious leaders and get the 30 pieces of silver. Judas walked with the Lord physically, but he didn't do it in his heart. And he still chose to follow Satan. This is a prime example of a double-minded person. What are we fertile ground for? What do we smell like? What are we fertile ground for? These are the questions to ask ourselves. What is my heart fertile ground for? What type of seeds am I receiving? Is it the word of God and growth and maturity? Or is it something in the world that I just love and I got to have? And if it's between that and the Lord or the things of God, uh, sorry, the Lord's going to lose out. Hey, I got to live my life too. People say all these things. I love that, you know, <laughs> you're judging me. You know, who, people who say that is carnal believers. Say something about me, I'll say, well, let me think about that for a minute. Is that your impression of me? Can you give me, I'm a big example guy, can you give me some examples? Now, let's do this logically. But the person who jumps at you right away and says you're judging me, usually they're hiding something, they have no idea what judging is. 
I taught judging about eight years ago. I'm probably going to teach it again because people, that is one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood scriptures. We can never the person determine salvation, but we must judge, the Bible says. We must judge our own hearts so that the Lord doesn't have to deal with us. And we must judge among each other. That's a very common used word. But people will say to you, don't judge me. That means that they're just, don't, don't waste your time because they're not interested. At the end of the day, Judas wanted the flask that contained the spikenard. Mary wanted Jesus. Today, Jesus is still a polarizing figure. Isn't that funny? 2,000 years later, you've got, check this out. This is the insanity of this. Jesus is, he's a fairy. He's a figment of our imagination. He doesn't exist. The ACLU is hell-bent on destroying Jesus. You must, if they could mind erase us, they would. Here's an organization that's spending tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in American courts to get rid of the pink elephant that doesn't exist in the room. They loathe Jesus because they know what, the, what it means. Why would you spend so much money? You guys could believe whatever you want. You want to believe in flying elephants? I really don't care. I'm not going to, you know, if you want to know the truth, I'll tell you the truth. They are so hell-bent on destroying Jesus from our minds, from our memories, from American history, from, from uh, uh, you know, ancient documents. Why, if he doesn't exist, why waste your money? Life's mission to destroy someone that doesn't exist. Of course they know he exists. They know the ramifications of his existence. As I'll tell you the truth, they're more believers than some believers. Because they're actually putting their actions into fighting him and destroying him. And there's believers that are just lackluster about the Lord. Those people believe. I tell you right now, they believe. They just don't want to submit. How do you get two people who have extremely different reactions to the Lord Jesus Christ? The difference is the heart. One heart was entirely for itself. The other was eternally grateful and showed in her actions. Which heart do we have? One heart saw the spikenard as a worthy treasure. The other saw the eternal treasure in Christ more worthy. Some see looks, money, promotions, degrees, self-promotion as worthy treasure today. Others put all those things secondary to the things of God. I'll tell you something else. If you're truly emulating the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have no choice, as the Apostle Paul says, as you've seen in your own life, as I've seen in my life, you will be a polarizing figure. Why? Because Jesus said, you're carrying my word. You're carrying my agenda. You're carrying my spirit. If I was hated and crucified, they're crucifying people today. Amer American media, is they're, they're, their head is in the sand. This cross is going up all over in the Middle East, and they're hanging people on crosses. Still, people are being crucified. What is the UN doing about it? They're turning a blind eye to it. Similar to Jesus, you'll be adored by some and hated by others. Get used to it. If your desire is to be liked and to fit in, you're going to compromise with the truth. We all have to decide in which treasure we will place our value in. Brothers and sisters, a few verses, very powerful. Let me leave you with this because it speaks for itself. Matthew 6, 19-21. Think about eternal treasure. Think about Jesus as the primary treasure as I read this. Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is powerful. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Your heart, your actions, your lifestyles, your words on a daily basis. The heart is like the rudder of the, of the human body. And I don't mean the four-chamber cardiac muscle. The emotion, the will, the intellect, lebed in, in Hebrew, that was taken over into Greek and then also American culture. It's such a powerful example that it's, it's lasted thousands of years through different cultures. We still say the heart. We sing about it in songs. Whatever we fill our heart with, whatever we desire in our heart, that will be the rudder to the human body. It will, it will use, oh, I'm a Christian, and it'll, it'll take you somewhere else, and it'll be obvious. You can deceive yourself. But this is what the heart does. So let me leave you with this. What do you place your value in? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.